Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thanks for joining us uh, for today's show. Uh, got a lot of national news to talk about, some state of Georgia news. Uh, we're going to cover all the bases on the show today. Our panel includes Kevin Riley. He is uh, the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the boss. He's with us on Tuesdays. Thanks for being here, Kevin. Always a pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, very quickly, we're not going to get into a long conversation, but you're well aware uh, this past uh, few days of a huge change in the media landscape in the city of Atlanta, in Metro, in North Georgia. Your employers, Cox, have sold the majority interest in WSB-TV, my old uh, stomping grounds. That is a huge, important change in the media landscape, yes? Yes, it was a big, big decision by Cox to uh, uh, sell their controlling interests in their television stations. Uh, but, of course, the Atlantic Journal-Constitution You're still, still stands the, tall. Fold. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And people can still uh, come to us for, for what they need. My suspicion, my guess is that you make a decision about this based on the fact that television stations— this is about as much as you're going to be able to sell them for because the future of TV is somewhat, at least broadcast TV, is you know, somewhat questionable. Well, let me, let me give a quick nod to my colleagues at uh, Channel 2 Action News, which uh, I, I would argue is the best local television station in the country by many, many standards. But the business is just changing yeah. in major, major yeah. ways. And Cox made a decision that for its stations, especially Channel 2, to continue to thrive, they had to make this decision. All right. Well, I spent 20 years there, so I still look on those They're years still recovering fondly. from that, from what I understand. <laughs> <laughs> Amy Steigerwald, political science professor at Georgia State University, is here with, with us today. Hey, Amy, you got any big announcements for us? No. No. But thanks for having me. <laughs> Julianne Thompson, longtime Republican activist in the state of Georgia. And now we can add to your credentials that you are the chair of the Women for Trump in the state of Georgia. Yeah. What does that That's mean? Correct. Um, well, I am leading Women for Trump for the state of Georgia and working with the organization nationally as well. Okay, so you'll be pretty active, I assume, very, in 2020 very as we head towards. Very active in 2020 right. and, and in 2019 as well. We're gearing up and uh, working with women across the state and across the nation and uh, working to get our president reelected. All right. Um, Julianne, part of a big power couple now in Republican politics nationally. Her husband just uh, elected a national committeeman. That's a big deal, too. Thank you. All right. <laughs> and here's another big deal. Former Democratic congressman from Cobb County, Buddy Darden. Hi, Buddy. Not a big deal, but backed by popular demand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's been a while since we've seen you. Thank you so much for uh, joining us again. Buddy, let me, in fact, start with you, if I may, because um, this affects uh, Democrats uh, uh, most immediately. Few presidential uh, items that we can talk about today. Number one, we've talked on the show yesterday about the fact that Elizabeth Warren was uh, here on, on Saturday. She was up in Gwinnett County. We now learn that another uh, Democratic presidential candidate, Amy Klobuchar, is going to be here. We mentioned it yesterday on the show, but didn't know exactly what she was going to do. She is going to be at a fundraising event, a private fundraising event, at the home of a good friend of yours, Gordon yes, Giffen. My good friend, former ambassador to Canada, Gordon Giffen, and his spouse, Patty, are hosting Senator Klobuchar this coming Friday at their home for a fundraiser and kind of a get acquainted session. It's our understanding, <clears throat> excuse me, that in fact the uh, state party may be looking at some sort of larger public something event to uh, add to the private fundraising event. We don't know anything about it yet, though we're waiting to hear more. 
I just think it's great that Democrats are beginning to pay a little attention to Georgia. I mean, regardless of how it votes in 2020, the fact that the candidates are coming here and allowing us the chance to get to know them and to be seen, I think shows that Georgia's importance continues to grow in the presidential race. You know, one of the things I thought was interesting about Klobuchar coming and being hosted, Kevin Riley, by Gordon Giffen, is that I, it strikes me, in fact, buddy, I probably should ask you this and then open it to the panel. Uh, Giffen has exactly been the kind of Democrat that Klobuchar, I think, sees herself as appealing to. Giffen, of course, uh, aligned with uh, uh, Zell Miller for a very long part of his career. Zell Miller, a, you know, a conservative Democrat in that old mold of Georgia Democrats. So it makes sense that uh, Klobuchar, who sees herself as a centrist, uh, would be going to Gordon Giffen's house, doesn't it? Well, Gordon is more of a uh, Clinton and a Sam Nunn uh, devotee right. rather right. than okay. a Zell Miller. Well, then but, fine. Still a conservative Democrat. That's right. His, his uh, background is with the more moderate wing of the party. But I would say also that I've been to his home before for a fundraiser for Senator Klobuchar when uh, she was running for re-election. So they are friends from way back, and uh, she's been there before. Yeah, she's been on our show. Uh, it's been a f- couple of years now, but uh, it was she was she was a fascinating guest to have on the show. Um, Amy, uh, the other news today in Democratic Party politics mm-hmm. is uh, Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. has jumped back into the race, 77 years old, a Democratic socialist, a, a socialist who caucuses with the Democratic Party. It's going to be fascinating to see what kind of traction he gets this time around. It is going to be really interesting. I mean, one of the things that he said in sort of starting off is that he wants everyone to not pay attention to things like race, gender, and of course, age, right? Because that 77 is concerning, right, on a number of levels, potentially, especially because he will be closer to 80 um, if he was to be elected. And then going into the term would be over 80, making him by far the oldest president ever. Um, And I think it's also going to be interesting to see, like, there's been a huge shift, right? A lot of the issues that he brought up and sort of policy thoughts were sort of considered to be um, kind of out there, shall we say, in the last term around. Uh, This time, they are now fairly commonplace, Medicare for all, et cetera. I'm glad you said that. Uh, Kevin, here's one of the quotes from the Saunders announcement. He said, three years ago, when we brought forth our progressive agenda, we were told our ideas were radical and extreme. Well, three years have come and gone, and as a result of millions of Americans standing up and fighting back uh, policies like... um, health, economic, education policies, progressive ideas around those, climate change, are now being supported by a majority of Americans. Well, the campaign will tell us just how far to the left Democrats are willing to go in 2020. It sure will. I kind of want to get back to why Buddy keeps getting invited to these fundraisers. He must write some pretty big checks, Bill. Maybe maybe we GBV should be hitting him a little harder for his his donation here. Well, actually, I do contribute to uh, GPC. Yes, he does. And also its uh, sister PBS station, because I believe in, in public broadcasting, but uh, that is tax deductible, and of course the <laughs> campaign contributions are not tax deductible. But I do get uh, a lot, a lot of pleasure out of seeing people come to this, come to this uh, city and campaign. And I'm a good friend of Gordon Giffen, and if he asks me to do something, I try to do it. So, so Bill, though, back to your what you really asked me, right? I mean, these Bernie Sanders ideas, which are which were radical, are now. I don't know if you'd call them mainstream, but they're starting to be there. Although Amy Klobuchar is really not necessarily jumping on some of those. No, she's, she's been very reason. cautious. She, about, for yeah. instance, she uh, has uh, made it clear. She has said some of these ideas are aspirational. I love the idea of them. Things like um, uh, a free college tuition, health care for all, you know, uh, uh, universal Medicare. Uh, she's being very cautious about all that. Julianne, two things to throw it to you. Number one, um, I, on my own, started a drinking game on this show yesterday. Uh, every time, uh-oh, uh-oh. Uh-oh. every time between now and November of 2020, 
Uh, we have guests who talk about the socialists in the Democratic Party. You've got to have a shot of something. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have water right here. So. Uh, I was going to say, um, it's, one of the things that's going to be very different for Senator Sanders this time around is the Democratic Party rules change, um, which makes it so that he cannot run as a Democratic Socialist. He cannot run as an independent. He must declare himself a Democrat in order to qualify to be on the ballot in all 50 states. So that is a recent rules change by the Democratic Party, um, which I think is going to make a difference. So we'll see we'll see what he's going to do there if, or if he's going to run as an independent. I wouldn't think that he would. Um, but I don't, talking about the, the ideas becoming mainstream, I think they're becoming mainstream in the base of the Democratic Party, but not in America as a whole. I think America in in the general election, when people start to pivot um, toward the center, the candidates start to pivot. We're we're talking about swing voters that are still not uh, that are not sold on those ideas. People that prefer more of a Buddy Darden style Democrat, and I I just I think that that's where America is. So although I think that those ideas are becoming more mainstream in the Democratic Party, yeah, I don't think I, it's in it, America. It's, at we're going to watch that play out uh, clearly in the uh, election coming up. And now let me turn to uh, the Republicans. Another announcement: Ivanka Trump is heading to Georgia. It was announced by the White House today. She's going to be with uh, Governor Kemp. They're going up to a UPS training facility in Gwinnett County. Gwinnett County. Is there any question in your mind what a battleground... You know, we talk about Georgia becoming a battleground in the 2020 uh, races, a congressional, presidential... But boy, Gwinnett County is going to be ground zero for that fight. Ground zero, and that's my home county. Yeah. That is where I live. I live in the 7th Congressional District in Suwannee, and um, it, it is a very diverse county in many different ways. Um, there is no one part of the county that's like another part of the county. So I, I think that it is, it's definitely ground zero to look at here in Georgia, and it's sort of a, sort of a bellwether, I think, for the entire country. Well, let me respectfully disagree here because I don't think there's any question that Donald Trump will lose Gwinnett County. And as you know, had it not been for Forsyth County, Rob Woodall would no longer be in Congress. I think Georgia, the state itself, is is a battleground, and I think Trump has the edge. But if he's going to depend on Gwinnett and Cobb County, I'm afraid uh, he's going to be sorely disappointed. Yeah, oh, it, I don't disagree with that. Yeah. I don't disagree I, with I that. I think it might have been fairer for me to have said just what you did, really, buddy. The 7th District will be a battleground because oh, of yes. Forsyth oh, County yeah. as well as Gwinnett. But, but let, me, let me follow up on the 7th District sure. a little bit. Rob Woodall is a personal friend and a fantastic congressman and very accessible to his constituents, but he didn't fought a, fight a hard campaign. He really didn't get out there and do a lot of fundraising. He didn't knock on the doors, make the phone calls. He did not run a hard campaign. So I, I still think that the 7th Congressional District is a district that we can keep, but I think it's going to require a Republican candidate who is willing to fight hard and, and work hard I, in the general election. I, Amy, I think that, that Julianne's statement is quite correct. Woodall mm -hmm. is a very laid-back politician. He's never cared a lot about fundraising. Uh, he, there's no complaints about him in terms of his constituent services, that sort of thing. But when it comes to the campaigning itself— He's probably reached the point where, yes, retiring from uh, public office makes more sense than anything else. I think that's very true. So I think <laughs> I think both things are true. I think, number one, he, especially in this last round, right, got a lot of um, actually pushback even by national Republicans that he was not investing in the race and sort of concerns there. But I think it's also true that the demographics of the 7th District have shifted pretty importantly. And so it does make it more competitive that that, um, you know, he had won very comfortably by 20 points before. They usually hadn't been able to get sort of a real challenger. This last time, there were multiple people who ran in the Democratic primary, right? And it was an incredibly close race of a uh, little more than 400 votes in the end. And so I think that those things sort of show sort of where that is shifting and, and where the turnout is. Um, and the other part of it that we're sort of all is that there's a possibility of redistricting, too, and where how that's going to potentially change some of yeah. these districts. Can I ask a question? And is this maybe the question of a novice but why if he's not going to run why not get him out of there appoint someone and th that 
Oh, let me point something out to you. You don't appoint someone to Congress. The mm-hmm. only way you can go to the House of Representatives is to be elected, either right. in a general okay. or a special yep. election. But let me say this about Rob Woodall. I've known him and known his family from the years. They've got roots in Hancock County, where I'm from, by the way. But uh, Rob is comfortable in his own skin and who he is. He's not comfortable out being a hard-charging right. partisan right. Republican or any kind of partisan because that's just not his style. And I think he's decided to move on and do something else rather than try to be somebody he's not. Well, so <laughs> let's just uh, finish this point, uh, part of the conversation by saying, Julianne, again, I, I correct myself. It's not Gwinnett County that's the battleground. It's the 7th District. Uh, it is going to be when you've got an Ivanka Trump up there uh, coming up, when you've had an Elizabeth Warren there, we see that that's one of the places that Republicans and Democrats are going to compete, not only in the congressional seat up that way, but for votes in a presidential race as well. I agree. Okay. Um, let's move on. The uh, You know, there was a House subcommittee in town today, Kevin, which uh, came in to listen to alleged uh, uh, violations of voting rights, uh, uh, irregularities in terms of voter purges, the sort of thing we heard a lot about in the 2018 race. We should point out that the subcommittee that was here was an all-democratic subcommittee. This was not a bipartisan group coming in to uh, examine what some, like Stacey Abrams and her campaign, alleged happened here uh, so they, they came in, they heard from Stacey Abrams and a few other people who testified. Let's just listen uh, to a soundbite from what one of the things that Stacey Abrams told them when she testified this morning. There is a chilling effect because of exact match, but also because of the hostility demonstrated by the then Secretary of State towards the act of registration. Unless you did it his way and the right people were registered, he displayed a disparaging and I think deeply disturbing response to registration. He would argue that he increased registrations, and I would certainly point out that registrations increased despite his behavior, not because of it. So uh, uh, Kevin Abrams and her uh, Fair Fight Georgia organization are continuing to step up their uh, attacks on the voting system here. In fact, they announced a little while ago they're going to be holding a news an event tomorrow to talk about expanding their uh, federal court cases uh, in terms of what happened here in Georgia. But the reason that the subcommittee was here may be the most important and pertinent. They are looking to gather information that they can go back to Washington and then draft a new version of Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, which was stricken down in in large Section 5. Thank you, Amy. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, which the Supreme Court really took all the teeth out of. And that, of course, is the part of the Voting Rights Act which deals with preclearance, which has been a crucial element, which meant that everything that a state like Georgia, which was covered by preclearance, had to go to the feds, to the Justice Department, to get approval. Even if it was taking a precinct, voting machine, taking voting machines out of a precinct, this happened in South Georgia. So we're going to, this is the beginning of an effort by Democrats up there to see if they can get preclearance back into law. Well, I mean, it, it definitely is. And we've, you know, depending on how you want to cast it, there's no question that a lot of things have changed in key southern states states since the Supreme Court struck that provision. Um, some people would see that as, well, we were closing some cl- voting precincts because they were barely used. Others would see it differently, that they were uh, denying access. I would just say that Democrats are a long way off from trying to get something like that done. I mean, as long as they don't have control of the Senate, you have to imagine it It won't go very far. Amy? No, I think that's right. I think the, I mean, so the, on one hand, there's the politics of it. I mean, the, I think the other side is, is that there probably are a lot of, it would be easier to start with things like amending the National Voting Registration Act and what is in fact the first House bill, House number one, that's to reform a lot of things with elections to address um, a number of these issues um, and where of that. But again, I've similarly, I mean, that's also gotten pushback from the House and sort of most notably yeah. by McConnell, who, for example, suggested that, um, yes, by the Senate and by uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, who suggested, for example, that, right, a national election day or a national holiday for election day was, um, 
like just another way that people wanted a day off and things like that, and that it was a big power grab. Julianne and Buddy, uh, uh, I think Amy really hit it on the head. One of the things that Stacey Abrams told the subcommittee when she testified today was that she believes we need more federal control over elections in all 50 states. What do you, when you hear that, what, what does that bring to mind for you, Julianne? Well, I, I think that that all has to be hashed out as to what that means. And I mean, I, looking at HB1 that you're talking about, um, I, I actually think that there's a lot of scary stuff in HB1. Um, and I, I would love to talk about that more in the future, <laughs> what's actually in that bill. But uh, I, of course, do not agree with Stacey Abrams on this. And I think that uh, I think that the state of Georgia, even though she said that voter access happened in spite of um, in spite of leadership, I think the fact that she put on her own campaign literature, it's easier to vote in Georgia now than ever before. It just is self-explanatory. Yeah, buddy, I do think that's something we've talked about on this show before. And it does strike me that, you know, there are all sorts of allegations about what Brian Kemp did as Secretary of State. They're being looked at. We may find that some of them uh, were valid concerns. But, but there's that other side of it. It was Kemp as Secretary of State who expanded the ability. You could do mobile registration on your phone. He made it easier for people to register to vote question is, did he make it easier for them to go to the polls and do it? Well, I have a real problem with turning the control of our elections over to the federal government. I believe there should be certain minimum federal standards, and perhaps that's where we ought, ought to go. In fact, our federal courts uh, were almost imposing some of those in some of the lawsuits that came up later on. But still, the conduct of elections, in my opinion, ought to be still conducted by the state. And it's certainly not a perfect situation we have in Georgia, and hopefully we can improve. But at the same time, I think we're a lot better shape than some states, including North Carolina, incidentally, and we ought to continue to make them fairer and more accessible uh, and, and encourage more people to vote. But at the same, same time, uh, we're not in the situation that uh, I think has been uh, characterized as being totally corrupt and inept. I do think that you are accurate, when, especially in your last statement. I can tell you that when I talk to our reporters and we observe national media parachuting in during the election, we found that people weren't digging very deep. They were willing to take the sort of unsubstantiated statements from both sides at times. But when you say the state should be in charge, are you effectively saying each county should do it their own way? I mean, what's your point of view on that? Yeah, let's make sure we understand That's that. a good point. I think that the state of Georgia in our situation ought to establish uniform rules for the entire state. It ought to have uniform standards for the entire state. Uh, we ought to have the same amount of time for pre-voting. Uh, in every county, even though it would cost more in some of the less populated. But I think I think you need to have absolutely clear and unambiguous standards and rules statewide. And, Amy, that's a great point uh, that, that, that Kevin first raised. One of the issues, he talks about the national media parachuting in and painting the bleakest pictures possible on the basis of things they saw happening in individual counties which control their own elections. Um, it was not something that was mandated in, the, in all these situations by some kind of state control. And the easiest way to deal with that is, as Buddy suggests, to set some very basic rules for how elections are handled across the board. Well, and I think that that's sort of a broader point, right, because I think we can sort of separate out when we talk about what do we mean by sort of election rules and even from the federal government, right? It's this idea of not wanting it to be idiosyncratic, right? We want there to be sort of systematic set standards. And one of the issues that Georgia, for example, falls under is that there's 159 counties with 159 different election <laughs> officials who make their own rules. And in some places, they're terribly small. There's not a lot of necessary oversight 
site. And so that becomes difficult. And so sort of a really easy thing to do is to just sort of stipulate these are what the rules are, right? These are the number of days we'll have for early voting. This is the hours that the polls will be open. This is who's able to apply. And also putting in a couple of extra checks, right, on things like exact match, right? If we want to keep with that, fine. But when it comes to the signature matching, having a second person who is there to make sure, right, again, that it's not idiosyncratic, because that's where I think a lot of the stories come out of are these sort of one-off anecdotes, which may not be the broader picture, but also are happening and can really sort of affect the narrative. All right. I got to get to a break. Uh, but before we do, uh, John Lewis testified in front of the subcommittee. Today. Let's just listen to what uh, uh, Lewis who has a lot of influence on the Hill when it comes to issues like this, what he had to say. But there are forces in our region trying to take us back to another time and another period. And you're bearing witness that we must not go back. We must go forward and open up the political process and let everybody come in. Financial contributions from listeners like you are not the only gifts that keep GPB on the air. In fact, many listeners have already chosen to donate a used vehicle to GPB. We'll pick up your vehicle for free and send you the paperwork for your taxes. Get started today. Call 877-GPB-1-CAR or go to gpb.org cars. That's 877-GPB-1-CAR or gpb.org cars. And thanks. Catholic leaders gather in Rome this week to discuss the continuing clergy sexual abuse crisis. Survivors say they are not hopeful meaningful change will come from it. Those people, to me, are the bigger criminals. They covered up the abuse and they allowed more and more children to be put in harm's way. And that breaks my heart. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 this afternoon on GPB and gpbnews.org. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Kevin Riley, Buddy Darden, Amy Steigerwald, Julianne Thompson in the studio uh, today. Um, so, uh, Julianne, we've 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 gotten not every Georgia um, member of the delegation up there has uh, weighed in on whether they approve or disapprove of the uh, Trump national emergency declaration to acquire the money he wants to build his wall, but. We have indications that clearly in the Republican delegation, more Republicans support it than oppose it. Johnny Isaacson, the one who has said he's not sure he thinks this is the best way to go. So let me start with that. Do you imagine that we're going to see Republicans here stand united around this national emergency declaration? Or here are we going to see the same things we're seeing in some other states where Republicans are uncertain about how they want to respond to this? I think in Georgia, you're going to see Republicans united about this. I do. Um, I think that anyone who is is not behind this, is not behind the situation when it comes to border security and building the wall or barrier or slats or whatever you want to call it, needs to meet with some of the angel families I was just in Washington, D.C. with last week. I was with 28 of them, 28 people or 28 families whose wives or husbands, children were murdered. Um, and the, the more that we are able to take these people to meet with elected officials, the more they understand the necessity. And they were actually, the angel families were actually invited into the Rose Garden and they were in the Rose Garden yeah. for the ceremony last Friday. Yeah, I, buddy, your response to that? I think it's sheer demagoguery because you have a much higher percentage of people legally in the United States committing crimes than you have from other countries. And I think one is too many, so I certainly agree there, but you would have 28,000 people you could bring in who have been the victims of gun violence from legitimate United States uh, citizens. So. I personally think that the 
president will prevail with all Republicans in Georgia, no doubt about that. But this is not about an emergency. We just a manufactured crisis by by the president just to show that he can do this. And I think that the only nobody seriously thinks we have an emergency at the border. But this is just something that the Republicans well, feel like they've got well, to do well, to support the president. Buddy, I want to I want to go. I'm going to go back to Julian, because when you say nobody thinks we have a crisis at the border, I think you're sitting across the studio table from someone who does. Oh, she doesn't believe that. <laughs> not, 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 a, not a crisis at the border. We have a crisis of leadership and we well, have problems. Uh, uh, let me just uh, give you an example of what happened when we were in Washington, D.C. We took these angel families to try to meet with Nancy Pelosi to have a sit down with her. We also took them to try to meet with Chuck Schumer. Chuck Schumer did send out one of his aides to sit down and meet with the families and was very kind to them. Nancy Pelosi <clears throat> called the Capitol Police and the Capitol Police lined the walls. About, about 40 to 50 uh, Capitol Police officers lined the walls and got out their plastic handcuff uh, things to, to arrest these angel families who were not even raising their voices. Uh, one of the angel families walked there. One of the moms walked out and was crying and talked about what happened to her 13-year-old son um, and how he was brutally murdered and set on fire in a field. <laughs> and, and you know what the Capitol Police did? They put down those plastic uh, handcuffs and 95% of them turned around and walked off and said, I'm not going to have any I, part of this. All right. It's not demagoguery. So it's any real. Crime it's is okay. real. Okay. I'm against I don't, any kind all right. of violence. We know the lines are clearly drawn on the issue of, of the wall, whether it really will protect us or not. We get that. It's definitely, and Julianne and Buddy represent that. I have to say, Julianne, the Pelosi story is of interest because I honestly have not heard, heard it reported. And this is someone who gets covered constantly by the media. Oh, so it was reported. It is. Okay, then I just missed it. So let's. Let's just let's go ahead and say, yep, there is a big divide here, Amy, between some Republicans and some Democrats over whether a wall is necessary. But the AJC reported a story this morning which looked at where money in terms of military appropriations might uh, be obtained for putting it into the Trump kitty for building his wall. And the AJ, the, the, they report that a U.S. House panel says that as much as $234 million in money that was earmarked for Georgia military installations could be, nobody knows, could be identified to go instead to the wall. Now, here's why I think this is particularly interesting. Buddy knows this. This is a state that was incredibly proud that we had a Sam Nunn in the United States Senate who was an, uh, a, an expert on military matters, chairman of the Armed Services Committee. He was the guy who always came home with big money for the military. And now we're looking at the potential for Georgia to lose funding for some of the projects that have been identified as necessary in the state. I think what <clears throat> is, when, once this goes to be implemented, the issue that comes up that moves it past sort of is that there is a zero sum in the sense that the money that would be tapped into for uh, this national emergency if it goes forward is money that has been authorized previously by Congress to be spent on other things that were determined to be necessary, particularly in military construction. And the idea is that since it hasn't yet been fully contracted, that the money could be diverted. And so you now get into a sort of real debate over what is what is necessary, right? What are our levels? Where does it go in? Uh, one of the things in Georgia is about cybersecurity and for Gordon, um, for, 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 for Gordon <clears throat> and, you know, assuring that the people that are at that base are safe. And so there now becomes sort of this real question of, you know, what is, in fact, a quote unquote lesser priority, as the president put it? And, and where are those determinations being made about where we need to be? sending resources and how that's going to affect not just sort of in a broad kind of, oh, there's money and this is what we should spend it on, but really in this question of where are we taking it away from and what are these things that we are now going to decide are not important um, and that the military is going to be forced to have to decide. Kevin? I think, yeah. So I'd say a couple things, Bill. First, of course, is as we're realizing, most of us can argue in theory about the border but now this sort of brings it home. In other words, I've got this uh, spreadsheet that I, I got from 
someone in Washington on all these military construction projects. And I'm going to pass it around for others to look at. I mean, you were once an appropriator. You'd know just what to think about this thing, right, buddy? But $99 million for Fort Gordon. I mean, if we lose that, I, I think that that's a big deal in Georgia. And, and I don't think the president's unlike, likely to do too much of this, but maybe he will. To me, what's interesting is if you look at it by state, I mean, will he target projects in certain states? For example, there's easily a billion dollars worth of stuff for California on this list. You know, and you just wonder what he will do. So, buddy, here's a spreadsheet. Have a look at it. See what you think. Well, I don't think there's any doubt that these are projects which have been targeted and in many cases sponsored by individual members of Congress. Uh, for example, Rick Allen down in, in Augusta, um, Buddy Carter down in Savannah. And, and there's going to be a whole lot of real politics going on as to what's on the list and, and what isn't. But as you indicate, uh, how that list is made up, how it, it uh, comes to the Congress is going to be very, very interesting because you're looking at a motion uh, for disapproval, which will go to the House and to the Senate and must necessarily be voted on. This is not something that you can just push off and, and, and forget about. So uh, you're looking at a lot of constituencies here and you're looking, looking at a lot of people's individual politics. And this is a, of course, this is an ultimate uh, political exercise here, so I'll just be interested well, to see how it comes and out. They're, they're, so, Julianne, back to you again. Um, you, you, you believe that the Republicans in Georgia are, are going to pretty much unanimously get behind Trump on this, but, but Buddy points out there are projects in parts of the state that could be affected by this, and then it's a matter of if it's a Buddy Carter, perhaps, or a Rick Allen, uh, suddenly they're going to have to tell their constituents uh, we're not going to have the money we thought. I mean, that Rick Allen a, has been that, quiet on this, right? I mean, he yeah, has they, they, that's doesn't that isn't that putting them in an awkward position? Well, that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of arguing going on behind the scenes. Um, yeah. It just means that it's not out in the open. Oh. Um, but I, I do believe that they will come to some sort of an agreement and and it will be one where they feel comfortable in backing the president on this. I'm going to be interested to see what Senator Isaacson and Senator Perdue do. Senator Isaacson in particular has recently spoken out about uh, concerns, and I think he, um, along with some other uh, Republican senators, are voicing a concern which is sort of more broad about the separation of powers and about what is the role of Congress versus the president and checks and balances. And this is really a place where that comes up, and I think that's partly what Isaacson is looking at. It's Congress's job to appropriate money and to decide where it's going to be spent, not the president's. And that is set in the Constitution in Article 1 and Article 2. Um, and so I think part of what we're going to see there is that fight. And um, the one I'm going to watch is Isaacson. I, I know that, you know, he he's the one who really uh, recently, you know, he also joined uh, with the Democrats in passing the recent uh, budget bill. He was one of the first to, uh, in the earlier votes, uh, vote for it, even when it still hadn't come to the agreement and to pass. And I think that he is expressing concern there, and as are a number of ones, because it's not simply about the politics. It's also about what is, are the powers and what really is the role of Congress? Because it's as we go forward, right, if, if this is an instance where, in fact, Congress debated it, they came up with an alternative proposal and passed that. And the question is, is what do we do in the future when we have a similar thing? And for example, now it's a Democratic president and a Republican Congress. And how will that respond, right? Do we really want it to be that this is determined, that it comes down in a party line, as opposed to sort of understanding who has that power and what it looks like? Buddy, keep your eye on our neighbor, <laughs> Richard Shelby, Senator Shelby, yeah. chairman of the yeah. Appropriations Committee, because I think he's going to be a major player but there's one thing that fascinates me here, and I think Julianne might be in a position to, to answer this, because most of us were frankly surprised that Senator McConnell embraced the idea of the emergency, de uh, emergency declaration. And I'd be wondering, do you think, Julianne, and I'm asking this not rhetorically, I, I, I want to know, do you think that that was part of the deal for him to get Trump to sign on to the bill uh, by agreeing to support the uh, declaration. Well, it most certainly could have been. All right. I'm, I'm, I just, I just wonder. I because don't know. I was a little surprised, frankly, that to see the Senate 
uh, not stand up and assert its priority because, as you know, the Senate has always been very, very uh, jealous of its prerogatives. And about the only thing I can figure out is that McConnell must have had a gun to his head and say, well, okay, I'll sign this if you You uh, go along with my declaration. So there's another interesting stream of thought we could pursue here, Kevin. Um, There is, I think it would be, excuse me, I think it'd be very hard to argue that in terms of the continuing resolution and the deal that Trump got, he lost. He didn't get 5.7. He got less in the final passage of the measure than he had been offered a little bit earlier in a bill that failed. So to some extent, there's some strategic thinking, I think, behind what the president's done here. This, this national emergency declaration is going to play out throughout 2019. It's going to go through the courts. It perhaps end up in the Supreme Court. And while this is all playing out, the president is able to tell his base, I'm fighting for you. I fought for you. Congress wouldn't give us what we need to protect the border. And as long as the issue is still uh, unresolved by the courts, the president can make the argument that he's winning because he's still fighting for his base. I, I, uh, it well, just no, strikes I, me I agree that's with you. a significant way to approach this. I agree with you 100%. Mm. I, I think he probably stepped back and said, I, I can't lose here. This, this wall is my favorite issue. Immigration is the issue that animates the president. No matter where you stand on it personally, it's clear that that's his favorite issue. And then I think this will get to the Supreme Court. I mean, just speculation, because I don't think anyone's going to give up until it does. And then we have an interesting question before the court. This is a court that has, generally speaking, sought to rein in the power of the executive, right? And now, if we're to believe that it's partisan and that these Republican appointments and Trump's appointments will pay off, they would have to go in a very different direction, all at a time when the chief justice has been out there trying to preserve and protect the reputation of that court. Yeah, well, Julian, I think that to try to predict what Chief Justice Roberts might do in this matter is a fool's errand because he has shown an independent streak that, at least in, in some cases, says to us, there's more than politics going on with the United States Supreme Court. And and I want to make clear that I am not a fan of all of the times that people have declared national emergencies. I mean, there's an article I'm looking at right now in Town Hall where it talks about 13 different times that Barack Obama did it. I, I believe, as is the law, the power of the purse belongs to the House of Representatives. Well, now, wait, we've got to stop that. Because in no other case, this is an argument the Trump folks are using, Julianne, but... Any pre, there is ne- but this is the first time a national emergency has been declared to circumvent an appropriation made by the U.S. Congress. That is a difference here. Well, I understand what you're saying, but I, I want to finish my statement. Okay. I, I'm not a fan of declaring national emergencies for a lot of the things that they've been declared for, just as, a, as a, I'm not a fan of executive orders. Um, I I disagree with them being used a lot of the time in the current administration as well as the past administrations. And I was a critic of George W. Bush when he issued so many. So um, but but among the Republican base and a lot of other um, a lot of other voters in America, this is an important issue to them. And they do see this as an as a national emergency. I know a lot of the people in this room may not, but. I, the the people that I talk to on a regular basis do see that. So it is it is something that there's definitely a great deal of conflict about in our country right, right now. We're going to watch that play out. I'm again, my particular interest in talking about it today is what happens here in Georgia. And buddy, my point about uh, Sam Nunn is is really correct, isn't it? We look to people like Sam Nunn, great Georgians who fought to protect how our military got funded in this state. Absolutely, and along with Carl Vinson, who yeah. was chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, and Richard Russell, his predecessor, yep. uh, Georgia has always come out way, way ahead in that respect. And I think there's going to be a lot of gnashing of teeth because some of these individual congressmen have a whole lot of time and effort invested 
in All this right. project. I, I, uh, thanks for a good discussion on that. Uh, I got to get to a break. Uh, we'll get our final break of the show out of the way and come back and uh, continue uh, with topics that we want to discuss. On the next Fresh Air, Andrew McCabe. He became the FBI director after President Trump fired James Comey. Last March, McCabe was fired by Attorney General Jeff Sessions on grounds related to his authorizing an aide to speak with the Wall Street Journal about the FBI's probe into the Clinton Foundation. McCabe was just two days from retiring. He's written a new memoir. Join us. Fresh Air is this afternoon at 3 on GPB and gpbnews.org. Touchdown, John Nelson here from GPB Sports, reminding you that in Georgia, the four seasons are not winter, spring, summer, and fall. It is football, spring football, Cruton, and National Signing Day. On the Football Fridays in Georgia podcast, we'll tell you the stories on and off the field. Subscribe at gpb.org forward slash sports and wherever your favorite podcasts are found. I wanted to take advantage of the fact that we have an actual Gwinnett County citizen, a resident of the county with us today. A leading Gwinnett County citizen. Absolutely. To talk a little bit about the MARTA referendum up there, we know that the vote's coming up. I think the uh, early voting starts in a matter of just a couple of weeks, Julianne. And uh, Charlotte Nash, the chair of the Gwinnett County Commission, a Republican, who, by the way, is going to be here Next, I think it's Monday, if I got the cab, Tom Faust is saying yes. Talk about that and other things. Um, She's been working hard to pass this referendum. For a while, it looked like this thing was heading in a very positive direction. There have been a few signs here and there that maybe the opposition is starting to catch up. What do you think? I actually met and talked with Chairman Nash last week about this. Um, I... The most recent poll, as we were talking about during the break that I saw, was a Rosetta Stone poll that said that 48 percent, if the vote were held today, 48 percent would vote no, 41 percent would vote yes, and the rest were undecided. Um, I I think that the biggest problem that many Gwinnetians, myself included, have with this particular bill and or this particular ballot question, and let me preface this by saying I support public transit. When I lived in Washington, D.C., I used Metro all the time. Um, but I, I think that people have a real issue, first of all, with the wording of the ballot question. I mean, there's no it's mention of vague. MARTA. It's pretty vague. Shall this, con- <laughs> shall this contract be approved? It's it, basically it, it all there is to it. It doesn't even include the When you say they have issues with the wording, I just want to be crystal clear. And by the way, Gwinnessians, that's how you say that? Gwinnessians. You, you have made me a wiser man today. I've always wondered how to handle that. Well, I'm glad something is. Yeah, yeah. But, but do you mean that people see the wording as deceptive pro or con? They see the wording as deceptive um, con. Because they they are seeing uh, that they see the fact that the ballot question, when they hear that it does not include the word MARTA, it does not include the word transit, it does not include the word tax. Um, so they have really no idea what they're voting on. And there there's no substance to the ballot question. And um, and there's a lot of people in some of the, the cities like Swanee and Sugar Hill and Buford and Petrie Corners that are saying, what's in this for me? And you know, I'm one of those people. And I do have a problem with the way that the, that the verbiage is. And I don't see any sort of return on investment that, that necessitates what they're talking about doing. And, and when the ROI is not there, it's a big problem, especially when you live in a city that is not going to benefit Buddy, from this. Let me get you in here because you're, uh, you're familiar with a county that doesn't want to expand to uh, a Marty either up there in Cobb. Well, I think if a vote were held today and it were properly advertised and properly explained, I think it uh, may well pass. And I think that's Julianne's problem here is that it hasn't been properly explained, hasn't been properly uh, promoted. And uh, I think the better vote, if you don't know what you're doing, is vote no. He's 100 percent correct. There has not been an effective public relations campaign for this ballot question at all. Um, I don't know who was leading this campaign, but they haven't done anything to educate the voters. I mean, they, they've had some of these uh, listening sessions in different locations as though John Q. Citizen just automatically knows to go there and try to find out. There really hasn't been any direct um, voter outreach. You, you know, Amy, <clears throat> the 
the AJC, I thought, did a great service for all of us this morning. Uh, they ran a piece on the front page which looked back at the 1990 martyr referenda, referendum in Gwinnett County. A very different county in 1990, a predominantly white county in 1990. Now we know that Gwinnett is remarkably diverse. That 1990 campaign played out as a racial issue almost certainly. It's not quite the same dynamic up there now. You have a great many people in the county who are the kind of folks who were demonized in the 1990 referendum. It's very true. I was actually in high school in Gwinnett County during ah. that time and remember how that played out. And it was definitely a lot of the a lot of the no campaign was about do we want sort of those people coming to crime. our area? They'll right. be able to come in. It'll bring crime. It will bring right people who aren't from here. And I think there has been a big shift, right? More people that live in Gwinnett County now work in other parts of the state. They work downtown, right? Now living in Gwinnett County is really close to downtown, right? You're a short commute as a opposed to people who live farther out and you want to be able to go to things like Mercedes-Benz Stadium and all of that. So I think that's sort of the one side. You know, the other side of it, though, is, you know, sort of to Julianne's point that it's how it's marketed, right? It's also who you're targeting. For something like this, it is going to be a very low information, low turnout vote. So it's the people that, in fact, are paying attention who are the ones that are going to go vote. You're not going to see high numbers. This is this is even more so than a special election, right? This is a really sort of very small thing. And so when you do have a breakdown in uh, communication about what is even going on, much less, right, how to understand a vaguely worded ballot measure, that's not only going to depress turnout, but it also potentially is going to go more towards a no vote, even if it's something that people might actually like. Kevin? Well, there was much debate about scheduling this election. Do, do you, does everyone recall sure, that? Sure, they wanted so, to do it in November as part of the uh, 2018 uh, general election. So ballot. I want to know from everyone, if you wanted it to pass, when would you schedule it? And if you wanted it to fail, when would you schedule it? <laughs> Buddy, I'd start with you. If I wanted it to pass, I would have put it on the general election sure. for mm-hmm. 2018. Sure, and absolutely. Yep. Because you'd have a much larger turnout especially those people who would tend to benefit from public transportation. You agree with that, Julian? I do agree. Yeah. I do agree. I mean, I think that's kind of a no-brainer. And then mm-hmm. and then you you add to that the fact that there would be a lot more money, it seems like, that would be available to do the direct mail pieces and, and the voter outreach. You'd also have it as part of a question for all of the candidates. So in that sense, it would be being yeah. talked about and discussed the policy. So doing it now was a move to try to keep it from passing? Potentially. No, no, no I don't think so, because certainly uh, uh, there were forces who were for MARTA expansion are were involved in deciding on a, on a date for the election, Julie. Absolutely. I, I don't know why they chose now. I really don't. Um, it, it, it was obviously a bad decision, but I, I certainly don't think that there was any intention of choosing this A bad this decision date. because the turnout will be so low. That's right. Okay. And uh, the people and a bad are, decision I, on on how they ran the pro campaign. All right, I've got to interrupt the conversation because we're out of time. Uh, but Charlotte Nash again will be here next Monday. She'll give us all the reasons why she thinks everything was said at this table was wrong today <laughs> in terms of the Marta <laughs> referendum. We'll uh, be interested in hearing from Charlotte Nash. By the way, at the very top of the show, we mentioned we would talk about this interesting bill that is proposing that direct scholarships be given to families to pay for private school education. A big change from the way things are handled now. It's a very controversial measure. We ran out of time to get to that. I guarantee you we will add it to the topics list for our show tomorrow. When We're also going to talk about health care and uh, Brian Kemp's proposal to uh, uh, fig- to what expand Medicaid a little bit, a lot we don't know, and tomorrow we'll explore that. I'm Bill Nigat. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you, buddy Julianne, Amy, and Kevin. Everybody, have a good evening. <laughs>